Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 66 for the fourth quarter, or the last five days, of February 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the Schumann Resonance. There is no specific claim that goes with this episode. Rather, there are a couple of different ones, but to talk about the topic in general, before we can even get to the point of describing the Schumann Resonance, there are three important background topics. First is the concept of resonance. Most people are probably familiar with this, especially if you've played any form of wind instrument in school, or professionally. For simplicity, I'll talk about the flute. A flute is really just a hollow tube that can vibrate, and that vibration will create a sound. Based on its length, it has a natural vibration frequency, meaning, if we anthropomorphize it a bit, that it wants to vibrate at that frequency and make that sound corresponding to that frequency. If you really, really want to, you could also think of an empty soda bottle or empty other type of bottle and blow over the top. It produces sound at its natural frequency also, as does a trumpet, as does almost anything, really. If you change the length of the flute, which is done by covering or opening holes on it, then the natural frequency will change because its length has changed. If you shorten the tube, the frequency is higher. If you lengthen the tube, the frequency is lower. This is why a bass flute is very, very, very long, while a piccolo is really short. When changing the length with holes isn't good enough for the range that you want, then you can just get a bigger or a smaller instrument. Another aspect that goes with this is the concept of octaves. Going from a low octave to the next higher octave doubles the frequency. In wind instruments, sorry string players, you usually change octaves not by changing what holes you're covering or opening, but by changing how you breathe, blowing faster or slower to hit the upper or lower octave. That's because the instrument will vibrate at both its natural frequency and multiples of it as well. For another example that most have probably experienced, think of a person sitting on a swing. The swing is really a very simple pendulum. It has a length and it has a mass at the end. For some of us, that mass is larger than for others. When swinging, to get the swing to go higher, you have to pump your legs at the same frequency as the swing is swinging. If you pump your legs a little slower or a little faster than that natural frequency, then you're not going to get any higher and you'll probably end up swinging lower because you're no longer enhancing the swing's own natural frequency. You're just choosing one of your own. But you could pump your legs twice for every time that you go up and down, or three times or four times. Or you could pump your legs once every other swing or once every third swing. Those would still get you to go higher because they're simple multiples of the swing's own natural resonant frequency. If you're still with me after that discussion, this second background topic might strain that. It's called waveguides. Waves, such as sound waves or light waves, will generally travel in all directions from their source. That means they lose intensity by the inverse square law, meaning that when you double the distance from the source, the energy of the wave is decreased by a factor of 4, increase the distance by a factor of 3, and the energy decreases by a factor of 9. You square the relative distance to get the decrease or increase in energy. It's the same with gravity, really. It also follows an inverse square law. Waveguides ideally stop this. 
They're also aptly named. They guide waves. They do this in either one or two dimensions as opposed to three, and the key feature is that the wave within the waveguide will undergo complete reflection. This means that none of the energy escapes at all. To get this to happen, the width of the waveguide needs to be about the same width as the wave that it's propagating. So, for example, a good waveguide for microwaves would be a bad waveguide for visible light. And speaking of visible light, that's really what fiber optics are. Waveguides for visible light so that the light is the same intensity as it was at the source once it gets to the end. And if you hold a fiber optic cable and you look towards its side, you won't see any light coming from inside because the light undergoes complete internal reflection. There are many forms of artificial waveguides, in fact I just mentioned one, but there are several natural ones on Earth itself. One is a layer of Earth's ocean, which is a very effective waveguide for sound frequencies that whales make. Another is an electronically conductive layer of Earth's atmosphere called the ionosphere, which brings us to the third background topic, the structure of Earth and its atmosphere. Many of us probably learned the very, very basics of Earth's atmosphere back in grade school. You have the troposphere, which touches the surface and goes up about 10 kilometers. Then you have the stratosphere and the mesosphere, the thermosphere, and then the exosphere, which quote-unquote touches space. If you had a good teacher, you may have also learned about the ionosphere, which goes from the upper part of the mesosphere, roughly 50 kilometers up, and then up through the exosphere, maybe up to about 1,000 kilometers. What distinguishes the ionosphere is not the molecules that make it up, or the temperature, or what it blocks out from space, which is what separates the other layers of the atmosphere, but rather the electrical properties of this large, thick layer. The ionosphere is characterized by atoms that have been ionized, meaning that solar radiation has stripped the molecules of their electrons. This means that you have a mess of free electrons running around and positively charged molecules. They'll quickly reconnect and then get ionized again, but the net effect, if you have enough incoming radiation, is that you get an electrically active layer of the atmosphere that's good at conducting electricity. If any of my listeners are a ham radio operator, I'm sure you'll write in if I got that at all slightly, inconceivably little bitty wrong. Besides radio signals from hams, the ionosphere is reasonably good at propagating forms of electromagnetic radiation, aka light. And coupled with the Earth's surface to make a spherical shell with the lower layers of the atmosphere between them, the ionosphere makes a fairly good waveguide, and that's the basic idea behind the Schumann resonance. To put this a different way, the theory behind the Schumann resonance is that EM radiation, or light, can propagate around Earth because the ionosphere and Earth's surface act as a waveguide. As with any other waveguide, this one is good at propagating signals known as ELF, or extremely low frequency, between about 3 and 60 or 100 hertz, which means oscillations per second. You have a natural, fundamental frequency which ideally would be the size of Earth divided by the speed of light, and then you have the upper and lower harmonics of that, so you have one at half of that frequency, at double that frequency, triple it, and so on. What's actually resonating is electromagnetic radiation, or light, that's produced by the roughly 50 to 100 lightning strikes per second across the entire globe. Those produce a lot of energy, that's some of it, 
have the right frequency to be captured by this natural waveguide. That's really it. See, it's, it's not so complicated. And it's definitely nothing new-agey. It's a basic theoretical idea that was defined at least as far back as 1893, but really developed and studied in the 1950s by Winfred Otto Schumann. That's why it's called the Schumann Resonance, because it was Schumann who really studied it and discovered it. But Earth's ionosphere is not a perfect layer. It's not perfectly conductive. It's at different altitudes depending on if it's day or night. Solar storms can change its conductivity and its location. Lightning doesn't happen at the exact same altitude in the atmosphere. Earth's surface is not perfectly smooth. The ice caps have different electromagnetic properties, and so does water versus land. And Earth is not a perfect sphere. Earth's atmosphere is not a vacuum, and so light travels more slowly in it. All of these effects combine to mean that the ideal theory of simply taking Earth's circumference, plus the elevation of the ionosphere, and then dividing that by the speed of light does not give you the exact number that's measured for the fundamental harmonic of the Schumann resonance. When I do the math, I get a natural harmonic of roughly 7.5 hertz, meaning that light travels around the planet roughly 7.5 times per second. When you actually measure the Schumann resonance, the fundamental frequency is at about 7.83 hertz. There are other measured harmonics, one at about 3, one at about 14.3, another at 20.8, one at 27.3, another at 33.8, another at about 45, and another at about 60. But these are fairly broad spikes. In other words, the Schumann resonance is not at exactly 7.83 hertz. There's a little bit of wiggle room up to about a hertz or so. Again, that's because Earth is not perfect and not ideal in a nice physics sense. Now moving on to the new agey type claims, if you were to search Google or probably any internet search engine for the term Schumann resonance, the first two or three links will be actual science, hopefully. The majority of the rest will be new agey. In fact, the majority are worded exactly the same, making me think that they probably copied the text from some original new age source that without a provable copyright date is going to be impossible to find. I'm really not sure why this concept has been so adopted by the New Age movement, although if I had to guess, it would be along similar lines as quantum mechanics. It's not something that's generally well understood, or in this case, not even well known. In college, I took six geology courses, 14 physics classes, and eight astronomy classes. I had never heard of the Schumann Resonance. In grad school, I took another dozen or so astronomy and geophysics classes and still never heard about the Schumann Residence. I first heard about it on Coast to Coast AM, probably either from Greg Braden or David Sarita. Braden I talked about in episode 17, and Sarita will be the subject of a future episode. With that in mind, you're not going to hear from Coast to Coast in this episode. You can all breathe a sigh of relief. I'm going to go through really three of the main New Agey claims that I've seen or heard related to the Schumann Residence in increasing order of wrongitude. The first is that Nikola Tesla was the one who discovered the resonance, but that he was ahead of his time and was shot down, and that it's the key to free energy. The very, very, very first part of that claim is almost true. Tesla did predict something like this back in 1899, although other people were talking about it and writing about it several years earlier. 
Tesla's idea was that it might be a way to more easily propagate energy around the planet for actual power usage, nothing to do with free energy. The problem with invoking Tesla is that it's much like having a Galileo complex or saying that someone is like Hitler. It immediately ends the conversation. In this case, Tesla is basically the go-to guy for energy stuff among New Agers. Many would have you believe that Tesla invented everything we could possibly dream about, but that the fill-in-the-blank shut him down and covered it all up. It's hard to separate fact from fiction if you read about him on the internet today, and if anyone doesn't already listen to Brian Dunning's Skeptoid podcast, I do recommend listening at least to episode 345 on The Cult of Nikola Tesla. The second claim that I've seen, which is probably the worst in terms of robbing you of your money, can roughly be fit into the naturalistic fallacy, and is promoted by people who, oh, I'm going to say, hate modern society. I say that because it's the ones who are effectively anti-electricity and the alleged electromagnetic sensitives. They make the claim that we either evolved or were created living on a planet where we were in harmony with the natural Schumann resonances. But that natural frequency is so drowned out these days by artificial electromagnetic pollution from humans that we grow physically ill or psychologically depressed simply as a byproduct of living in this polluted, electromagnetically crazy environment. To quote from the Music of Your Mind website, Simply put, human beings were not meant to live surrounded by power lines, satellite receivers, and cell phone towers. We were meant to live surrounded by the natural resonance that helps us achieve our optimum brainwave state, but instead, we've created our own bunkers, cut off from the Earth's frequency by our own inventions and conveniences. Is it any wonder that stress, depression, and anxiety disorders are more abundant today than ever before in history? The solution, according to many websites that I've read, was to buy their, ironically, electronic product, now at the low, low price of anywhere from 60 bucks to $250, and this electronic product would produce artificial frequencies at the 7.83 Hz, re-energizing your body and your mind. I think from my tone that you can guess what I think about these products. The third New Age claim I think tracks back to Greg Braden. For most people I see making this claim online, reference it back to him if they reference it at all. The claim, as I've seen it in various forms, simplifies to basically say that since about 1987, during José Arguelles' harmonic convergence thing, the Schumann resonance is increasing, and that around 2000, that's the year 2000, it was not at 7.83 Hz, but it was around 9 Hz, and that a few years later, it was around 11 Hz. Some people put the date for the start of this back in 1980, but that's not really important. As is typical with Braden, he states, quote, Science doesn't know how or why, or what to make of it. But of course he does. It all ties into his idea that somehow time is speeding up or some such other thing. It's nice that I can spend a few episodes where I'm not saying over and over again that Richard Hoagland is just making stuff up. Instead, I can say that other people are. As far as I can tell, Braden's, quote, U.S. Navy, unquote, source for this is completely bogus, and that the claim is pure poppycock. He's making it up, or someone else did, and he just took it as is. The only way for the Schumann resonance to change is for Earth to dramatically decrease or increase in size, 
and or for the ionosphere to dramatically increase or decrease in height by well over a factor of 10. That's the only way to do it, unless you want to change the fundamental laws of physics. If time were actually speeding up, then we wouldn't notice it relative to the Schumann resonance, because light would also be increasing in speed. So the way that we measure the Schumann resonance time is going to be speeding up, and the speed of light is also going to be speeding up by the same amount. Therefore, in the new unit of time, the Schumann resonance would take just as much of the new unit as it did in units of the old unit. It, it doesn't make sense. It's one of those does-not-compute moments that you have. In the end, the Schumann resonance isn't that complicated of an idea. Its fundamental frequency is how long it takes light to travel around the planet when bounced between Earth's surface and the ionosphere as a waveguide. As with all resonators, it has upper and lower harmonic frequencies that are roughly integral multiples or divisions of the fundamental frequency, about 7.83 Hz, plus or minus about 0.5 Hz depending upon the time of day or the location or the amount of lightning, etc. etc. It's not exact because Earth is not an ideal perfect sphere, nor a homogeneous system. But somehow, this has been co-opted by the New Age movement to mainly argue either conspiracy, a naturalistic fallacy, or that one guy's book is telling you what's going on because he made up the information about it. That's not to say the Schumann resonance isn't interesting. It may be able to be used to detect lightning on extrasolar planets, you know, planets that are 50 light years or 500 light years away. Or it possibly maybe kind of might be able to predict earthquakes on the very, very short term. It's associated with many transient atmospheric events like sprites and elves. And perhaps because of that, and because it does take some explanation to realize what it is, and many New Agers who try to describe it without their notes get it wrong, that it's been adopted by that particular crowd to be used as an explanation for their particular pet idea. There is no new news related to a previous episode for this one, but in a bit of new news related to next episode, by popular request, episode 67 will be about the conspiracies that sprang up within just a few hours of the Russian meteorite strike on February 15th of this year. If you have something specific that you'd like me to cover, please do send it in. In the interest of time, and well, actually my own time, and uh, other obligations that I have, I'm going to be skipping the Q&A this episode as well as feedback and getting on straight to the puzzler. The puzzler is where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask an attempted critical thinking question attemptedly based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The puzzler last time was sent in by Warwick. Why does the sun appear to be yellow? Congratulations goes to Jan via email and Ravenhall through the SGU message boards for getting the most correct answers. The reason that the sun appears yellow is due to a couple of different things. First, the peak wavelength that the sun emits is green to the human eye. But the blue and violet end is about 90% the peak intensity, while the red end is about 80%. So one would think that it should appear a bit bluer as opposed to a bit redder, as in yellower. However, we're viewing it through our atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere does a great job at scattering blue light around, 
mostly due to the nitrogen in it, meaning that the somewhat coherent light that appears to originate from the sun's disk as seen from Earth's surface has a lot of blue light removed, making it appear yellow. This is why it gets redder and redder and redder the more atmosphere that the sun goes through, which incidentally is why total lunar eclipses appear to be very red, or the moon appears to be very red. There is no puzzler for this episode, but with the next episode about the Russian meteor, if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on it, please send it in. As for announcements, I can finally announce that I will be doing a workshop at The Amazing Meeting, aka TAM, this year, 2013. The annual meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada has workshops on Thursday and talks on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. My workshop, which I'll be doing in concert with Brian Bonner of the local Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society, is scheduled for bright and early 8 a.m. the very first day. The full title is How Your Camera Lies to You, From Ghosts to UFOs, A Skeptic's Guide to Imaging. I know that it's still about six months away, but if anyone has any particular ideas of things that they really, 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 really think I should touch on, or ideas to make it more interactive, please do write in and let me know. As I said, I'll be co-leading it with Brian Bonner, a founding member of the Rocky Mountain Paranormal Society here in Colorado, who was on a workshop panel last year and was one of the people on stage helping with the Million Dollar Challenge. He'll also be doing a few other things this year at TAM as well. Also, I do have one idea for interactivity for the workshop, but it requires an iPad slash iPhone slash iPod Touch slash maybe Android application. If anyone is willing to volunteer their time and knows something about programming in these languages for these devices, please write in. That wraps up this rather short topic for the 66th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use one of the feedback form on the website, beta, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. 3. Leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. D. Leave a comment on my blog post for the episode. 5. I think 5. Leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast. Or 6. Send me a tweet, at pseudoastro. I do read every message, even if I don't respond, and I do appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please feel free, and do, write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, also tell friends and family, as well as several random people that you'll never meet in real life. 